Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word and that it is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Your word is good. Your word is holy. God, may we understand your word this morning and through it know you more. That's why you've given it to us. So we would know you and walk with you and enjoy you and and relish in you and worship you. So God, speak to us through your word that we would do all of those things this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, like I said, we are in Deuteronomy 13. Uh, We are concluding this second installment in our series in Deuteronomy. Uh, We are heading to Philippians in a couple weeks. And if the Lord wills, we will likely return back to Deuteronomy, picking up in 14, sometime in 2024. (laughs) We do things easy, yes. Uh, we conclude with chapter 13, which is contra- as controversial as it is clear. Um, the laws contained within it, as well as the penalties annexed to them, are just clear. They're unambiguous, and yet they are difficult because of their content. Difficult not to their original audience so much as they are to us and our Western modern sensitivities. So I want to encourage you to stick with me through this message. Don't get lost in your thoughts or tune out partway through. This is a hard passage that needs some explanation in the context of the whole Bible. If someone, if we, any of us, remove it from the whole, from the story of redemption and the overall message of the scriptures, we will misunderstand it and walk away with a false delusion. And that is not what I want. Actually, if you walked away with a false delusion now, we're teaching that delusion. That's what this passage is about. So don't do that. So again, I want to encourage you to stick with me through this message. With that being said, the overall gist of this particular section, as I said, is straightforward. Demanding of Israel a radical adherence to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Or in its positive form, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. As it reiterates in Deuteronomy, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. It's the ongoing concept of Israel standing firm in undivided allegiance to the Lord. We have seen this concept permeate the opening 13 chapters of Deuteronomy. So it's a great chapter to end on because it's all about that. 6.5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 10. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. And by His name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God. Chapter 11. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep His charge, His statutes, His rules, and His commandments always. Now these directives are all further declarations of what we saw occur as they were coming down off of Sinai, as He was coming down off of Sinai, as they have, uh, have exited Egypt and been delivered from slavery in Egypt. The Lord says, you shall worship no other God for the Lord, whose name is Jealous. 
is a jealous God. And now that we have transitioned to the more particular, detailed laws that flesh out this broad principle, we encounter three specific instances that are based in this principle of you shall have no other gods before me. That is, we see three different settings or possible scenarios where the directive of worshiping the Lord alone comes to bear. The first case is in verses 1 through 5, and it provides an instance when a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises and performs miraculous signs and wonders for the people and then tries to convince them to go after other gods and to serve them. Israel is told not to listen to this individual, but to put him to death for trying to get them to rebel against the Lord. The second case is in verses 6 through 11. And it provides a similar instance of someone trying to entice others to go after and serve other gods. But this time, that person doing the enticing is someone close, an intimate relation, a sibling, a child, a spouse, a best friend who is as your own soul. The response is to be the same. Do not yield to the temptation and then put that person to death for teaching rebellion against the Lord. And the third case is in verses 12 through 18, and that addresses an instance when an entire Israelite city's inhabitants have been drawn away to serve other gods. It says that careful inquiry should be made, and that if such an abomination has occurred, that all of the city's inhabitants and its livestock are to be put to death. Hmm, what a fun passage to preach for y'all. It's like the end of each of these series that we do. It's like that passage is, oh man, really? Now, as you've probably noticed, these laws share numerous common elements. Each law is about a different instance of apostasy or rebellion, about certain individuals tempting others to go after other gods and serve them. We are to stand, or they are to stand firm against the influence of these false teachers. These actions of these false teachers are described as teaching rebellion against the Lord your God and seeking to draw you away from Him. That is the essence of why these laws are being put into place, to keep people from turning their loyalty or allegiance away from the Lord, so that they stand firm in undivided allegiance toward Him alone and do not divide their allegiances or abandon them altogether for other gods. Take care, it says in chapter 11, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. So this is why I said at the beginning that these case laws are all about the first commandment, that they have no other gods before the Lord, that they would give undivided allegiance to him. Now in each of these scenarios, Moses gives a set of directives instructions on how the people are to stand firm to respond to the situations. First, they are not to yield or take heed to this blasphemous counsel. Verse 3, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet. Verse 8, you shall not yield to him or listen to him. That's clear enough. But that is not all that they are to do. That is not all of the counsel. Don't just resist them, but because they are attempting to draw the people of Israel and re into rebellion against the Lord, 
they are also to take action against these people. They are to punish these people for their rebellion against the Lord and for the seditious plot to draw others into that rebellion. What is the penalty? Verse 5, But that prophet or dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Verse 8 and 9, Nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. Verse 15, you shall surely put the inhabitants of the city to the sword, devoting it to destruction, all who are in it. Ouch. Did you notice the people in these three instances? The first group of those who were to be put to death, isn't too difficult for most of us to swallow, unless you are a pastor or other kind of teacher. The prophet or dreamer of dreams, that anonymous person shall be put to death. Yeah, that's okay. We're okay with stoning Kurt, right? (laughs) But then it's brought closer to home. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul. Hmm. The close friend or relative. Look how it's stated. The wife you embrace. The one you dearly love, sincerely love. Your beloved child. Your friend who is as your own soul. They too if they are encouraging you to rebel against the Lord and to worship other gods, are to be put to death for urging such sedition. And then there is the entire city who has succumbed to these false teachers and their teachings and has revolted against the Lord. The entire city, all of its inhabitants who have partaken of this abomination is to be put to the sword. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read a passage like this, I kind of feel like those disciples that said to Jesus, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Do you guys feel that way? I can't feel that way. So what are we to do with this? I ask this question on multiple levels. First, what is the application of these laws for us today? Does our application differ from the application of its original intended audience? If so, how so? And why? But further, what are we to do with this passage internally? Even if, as we will see, these penalties were particular to ancient Old Covenant Israel, they still seem exceedingly harsh and even unjust to our modern sensibilities. We probably don't like them and think they are unfair. So what does this say about the lawgiver? What do these laws say about the lawgiver? What do these laws and their consequent penalties tell us about the Lord and what He is like? And how are we to digest that? The answer is mind-blowing astonishing, 
It is glorious and magnificent. Its truth will hopefully inspire and motivate us to a greater devotion, to more of an undivided allegiance of Him. It is a great, marvelous answer. So hang on. But before we go to that great, marvelous answer, we need to address those first questions. So let's first look at these directives and their application to us today. I want to remind you of a truth that has been a recurrent theme throughout this series. This is the distinction between Old Testament directives that were absolute and universal, that have perpetual relevance for all people, for all of time, and those directives that were conditional and temporary, that had specific application for a particular people at a particular time. Our task whenever we are studying the Old Covenant regulations, is to be able to identify which laws and principles are perpetual and which are particular. Which instructions are eternally binding and which ones were specifically for that people, in that society, in that setting, with that governmental structure entering into that covenant at that time. That's what we need to do. So I'm going to help us in that. First of all, all of the penalties, all of the penalties for breaking any of the laws, whether moral or ceremonial, were particular. All of the penalties, all of the penalties for breaking any of the laws, whether the laws were moral or ceremonial, were particular. They were the civil means of enforcing the law within that theocratically governed society. The penalties were for those who were a part of that covenantally bound community. Remember that this is a covenantal ceremony that is going on here. That's what Deuteronomy is. It is a covenantal ceremony. And at the end of it, the people will all consent to these laws and the various penalties for breaking them. They are agreeing to civilly abide by these laws within the covenant community and to be punished in accordance with the sanctions or the penalties that have been annexed to these laws should they violate them. Does that make sense? It's, it's just like we as American citizens are under an obligation to abide by the civil laws of our county, our state, and our nation. And we are subject to the designated penalties for violating them. So, that being said, are the penalties for violating these laws binding in the surrounding foreign nations? No! That's their nations. We are not bound by Mexico's laws unless we've entered into Mexico. The same principle goes for all other people who have not agreed to enter into the contractual agreement of the Old Covenant or who have not entered into that theocratically governed community. So what about those of us within today's society? Have we agreed to be a part of the ancient Israelite Old Covenant community and are therefore subject to the regulations and penalties of its law? Everybody say, no. Good job. Everybody say, no. Well done. And what about those of us under the new covenant? 
Have we agreed to be bound by the old covenant civil laws and penalties? Everybody say, heck no. Yeah, I was going to say another H word, but never mind. So the penalties that we read of here, as well as all of the penalties annexed to all of the laws throughout the Old Testament, are obsolete. We are neither subject to these penalties, nor do we have the authority to administer or implement the Old Covenant penalties for those who break God's law. That's important, folks. Listen to that one again. We are neither subject to these penalties, nor do we have the authority to administer or implement the old covenant penalties for people who break God's law. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Okay, that was the easy part of the passage. The question that many raise is whether the death penalty was a just punishment for that kind of crime. Was the penalty equal to the offense for false prophets, family members, and especially for an entire community? Most people don't have a problem with the idea of the death penalty as a punishment for murder. But for someone attempting to turn someone away from the Lord and toward the worship of false gods? To alter or transfer their religious affections? And especially for an entire city of people? Isn't that overly excessive? Everybody say, no. We simply don't understand the crime in its context and the gravity of the crime itself. Let's try to grasp some of the magnitude of this abomination. Believe me, this, this sermon will get encouraging. I know it's kind of like, oh my gosh. First, we absolutely... First, it was absolutely just in that society at that time because this action would be equivalent to treason, both against the Lord and against those who were his people, a.k.a. the nation of Israel. It's treasonous. Remember that the Israelites lived under a theocracy. They were identified externally through their adherence to the law and devotion to God. And yet when these people worshipped false gods, it utterly undermined both of those concepts. And then, if that weren't enough, there was this agreement that they had entered, this covenant that they had entered as a nation. And they would face the curses of the covenant as a nation. The nation would undergo the curse of God when its people were led into rebellion against him. It's no wonder they thought it was national treason. That's just the first one. Next, it was absolutely just in that society at that time because they, these sins would tear the nation and families apart. This wasn't a casual slip of the, slip of the tongue, but a deep-seated rebellion that destroyed lives, homes, and communities 
So it had to be dealt with harshly, severely. Look at how the situations progress just in these laws. It moves from the individual to the family to the abomination of an entire community. The sin grows and infects others to the point where an entire community is in rebellion against the Lord. Which leads us to the third reason. It's explicitly stated within the passage. Such a punishment would be both to purge the evil from their midst, as well as to act as a detriment from other such similar offenses. Verse 11, Israel will hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this. You see, these people are a malignant cancer attacking the body of Israel trying to spread their poison and destroy other people and potentially the entire nation. These malignant evils must be eradicated before they do this. Lastly, and most importantly, turning others away from following the Lord is far worse than murder. The passage calls it an abomination. We don't tend to get this concept in our day and time, and yet it is just as significant. People's eternal destinies are at stake. Further, the glory of God is at stake. These people are not only diminishing the glory of the absolutely holy, infinitely holy God of the universe who created all things, but they are trying to get others to join them in this horrific abomination. It's not just national treason that is going on here. This is cosmic treason against the Lord God Almighty. C.S. Lewis once said that if we no longer feel comfortable with scriptures like these, it's not because of our greater quote-unquote Christian sensitivities but because of our appalling moral apathy. We no longer feel the passion of the author that God should deal with evil and evildoers and vindicate his own moral order in the world. We respond to idolatrous, blasphemous evil, not with a curse, but with a shrug. Eh, Okay, it's just God. Don't worry about it. And then we have the gall to claim morally higher ground than ancient Israel. Mm. Similarly, says Chris Wright, if we can no longer identify with the scale of priorities and values that undergird Deuteronomy 13, it is manifestly not because we have acquired a greater appreciation of the value of human life but because we have lost any sense of the awful majesty of God's reality. Mm. It's awfully quiet in here, isn't it? So let's see if we can apply this to the new covenant community. How are we to stand firm against subversive people and movements? Even though the particular instances of these laws address as well as the civil punishments for them were particular to Old Covenant Israel. 
There are some perpetual principles that we find within these laws that are to be applied within the new covenant community in Christ. First one, first principle, first perpetual principle. We are still called to undivided allegiance to the Lord your God. After all, Jesus still commanded in the New Testament that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Therefore, we are not to be idolatrous, chasing after other gods. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, there's what? There's one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist. For whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Another principle. We are still to watch out for wolves who would deceive us. Not wolf. Wolves. Just to clarify. We are to be aware of people who would try and turn us to the worship of other gods. Jesus said, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. But be on guard. I have told you these things beforehand. That, that sounds a whole lot like what we've just read in Deuteronomy 13, doesn't it? Peter says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. There are false teachers and false teachings all around us. I don't need to tell you that, do I? People who claim to be followers of God, Christian, and yet are in essence saying, come, let us go and serve other gods. Many of them you've probably heard of. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Prosperity Gospelites, and other pseudo-Christian cults. But these aren't the only ones. There are many wolves within mainstream evangelicalism. Some you've probably heard of and others you probably haven't. Now, does this mean that we are to seek them out, hunt them down on the internet, and then create a watchdog website that exposes every single false teaching that we can possibly find? No. Good job. Everybody say, no. There are some people who are called to ministry to cultists. Christy, that's her calling. That's not our calling. What should we do? When we encounter false teachings, guess what? The New Testament tells us what to do. <laughs> wow! Who would have guessed? <laughs> Ephesians 5. Let no one deceive you with empty words. 
For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. That seems pretty clear. Don't listen to their words and do not yield to them. That advice is the same as in Deuteronomy. Same principle. You should even warn others you are close to about them so that those loved ones are not deceived. But what are we to do when we find false teachers among us in our new covenant community of the local church? Well, that one's a little bit harder, isn't it? Get into that relationship one. I think that's why the second one is in there in Deuteronomy because you have that in-depth relationship. And that's a lot harder to deal with, isn't it? It's it's so much easier to, oh, look at those guys over there. They're a bunch of heretics. So what do we do when they're in the new covenant community? Do we burn them at the stake? No. Remember, the church does not bear the sword. We do not live under theocratic rule. There is not a stoning area behind the church building. (laughs) Rather, the New Covenant community, the church, is given their own form of just punishment and the purging of the evil from their midst that fits the context of the New Covenant community. For such sins, we are to warn them. As for a person who stirs up division... Warn him once, and then twice, and if they continue, have nothing more to do with them, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. What's that saying? We, we break fellowship and undertake church discipline, bringing in the elders, which, if those people continue in their sin, ultimately results in delivering to them, them to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. As you can see, their punishment is not physical, but spiritual. The words of Jesus are haunting here. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of of the sea. Get that. It would be better to be executed by drowning to death. Better than being drowned to death. You see, it still is cosmic treason. The true horror that awaits them, just like those abominators in Israel, is the just, eternal, spiritual punishment from the wrath of the Lord God Almighty. So this is the process and means by which the New Covenant community stands firm and purges the evil from their midst. This is how the church exercises punishment for individuals who attempt to draw others into the worship and service of other gods. Everybody take a deep breath. Now, all that we have left is the elephant in the room. The concept around which this has all been centered. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him 
you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. The concept in question is the Lord's demand of the undivided allegiance of his people. His jealousy over and punishment of those who aren't and his overarching command to love and worship him. It's certainly located within this passage, centrally located in this passage. Verses 3 and 4, For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. Jesus demanded the same allegiance. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Why is the Lord so demanding of our love and worship and so jealous when he doesn't receive it? That seems rather self-centered and egotistical, doesn't it? And rather beneath an all-powerful, all-loving, self-sufficient, kind and gracious God, doesn't it? Here he is, an infinitely lovely and an infinitely loving being, and he demands that I love him and worship him. C.S. Lewis once said that one of the biggest obstacles in coming to believe in the God of the Bible was that the constant demand from God to praise him seemed to him to picture God as craving for our worship like a vain woman wants compliments. Oprah Winfrey gives a similar testimony as to why she walked away from God. She said, I was thinking, God is all. God is omnipresent. God is also jealous. A jealous God is jealous of me? And something about that didn't feel right in my spirit because I believe that God is love. Is she right? Well, the Lord God is indeed jealous. He is jealous for his own glory, for my own sake. My own sake, I act. My glory, I will not give to another, he says. And he is jealous for his people, for his treasured possession, for you. You shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. He will not share them with another. He will not allow his people to prostitute themselves, to commit spiritual adultery by worshiping other gods. So what's up with that? How can God be jealous and self-centered and love his people at the same time? I'm glad you asked. After all, we know from 1 Corinthians 13 that love is not jealous and that love does not seek its own. And indeed, jealousy and self-centeredness are negative for almost everyone. It reminds me 
of a youth group altercation that happened many moons ago. Some of you have already heard this story, but it bears repeating because it's a good story. In the church that we were attending at that time, I taught a class for youth during first service that was called Stump the Chump. You guessed it, I was the chump and they were the stumpers. One week, our discussion turned to the jealousy of God. It just so happened that in the later service, they were covering 1 Corinthians 13. And that teacher had the class, instructed the class to, to he said, God is love. He was right. He said, so therefore, we can substitute God in place of love everywhere in 1 Corinthians 13. Hmm. So they began. God is patient, because love is patient. God is love, see? And God is kind. So far, so good. But when they inserted God into the next phrase is when it went hmm, wrong. God is not jealous. Two lines later, God is not self-seeking or self-centered. Well, you can imagine their response, right? They came a-running to me after class. Mr. Churchill, you want Chump! 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 You're not going to believe this! What are we going to do? So, after assuring everyone that the Bible does not contradict itself, I set up the next youth group to discuss it. Brought everybody in, the other teacher. And I explained to all of them the mistake that had been made. The great love chapter is about how we as human beings are to relate to one another. But God is altogether different. You see, he relates differently because he is different than we are. I get jealous when others do not treat me the way I think I ought to be treated. Anybody give me an amen on that one? Or when others are treated the way I want to be treated. Everybody give me an amen. Now, we, we shouldn't so be it. No. Yes, just everybody say, yeah, I do that. Yeah. This is because I tend to be self-centered. It is at the root of my jealousy. I then explain that God has told me, Jason, not to be self-centered. I told them to replace the word self, which is a pronoun, with the subject that the term is describing. In this case, self is describing who? Jason. So am I, so I am not to be who-centered, Jason-centered. Because Jason does not deserve worship or ultimate allegiance, does he? Everybody say, no, he doesn't. Thank you. Hot louder, please. Yeah, thank you. My wife is especially loud there. <laughs> to be self-centered is to be idolatrous. Not only that, but to be self-centered destroys me. You see, what I need cannot come from me. Because I wouldn't need it then, would I? But I need it. So what I need cannot come from me. Nor can it come from others who need the same thing. My greatest need is for the highest satisfaction. An enduring, ultimate love. 
an infinitely deep peace and joy that will never, never, never end. That's what my soul needs. Is that what your soul needs? Can I or any other human being supply that for me? No. So if I am centered on myself, if I worship myself, I cannot experience what will satisfy my soul. Rather, I am to center myself on the greatest being in existence because that being alone is worthy of worship and allegiance. That being alone has no need. That being alone, the Lord alone is eternal. He has always been and always will be. The Lord alone is life and existence itself from whom all else finds its existence. The Lord alone knows all things, past, present, and future, from whom all other things know what they know. The Lord alone is all-powerful, who is the source and sustenance of everything else's power. The Lord alone is sovereign over all and directs all things after the counsel of His will. The Lord alone is altogether lovely, the lily of the valley, the fairest of ten thousands. That is our God. There are no other gods, people, or objects worthy of being centered on. In other words, I need to be God-centered. You see, everyone and everything needs to be centered on the greatest being in all of existence. That is why no one should be self-centered. That is... No one besides God Himself. I told the class to do the same thing that they did with my name, but do it with the Lord, replacing the pronoun with God. Do you see how it is different? If God is self centered, then God is God centered. He is centered on the most glorious, perfect being in all of the universe. He is the only being in the universe that is worthy to be worshipped. It is right for Him. His ultimate allegiance to Himself is rightly on the one being in existence that deserves it. Himself. God is not an idolater. He doesn't bow down and worship at our feet. Oh, what should I do? We'd be in a lot of trouble, folks. He's the only being for whom self-exaltation is righteous, honorable, and good. But that just scratches the surface. Because God being jealous, the Lord being self-centered is, (laughs) are you ready for this? Is the most loving thing He can do for His people. What? The Lord being self-centered is the most glorious loving thing he can do for his people. Hmm. 
You see, the Lord doesn't need our worship. He simply deserves our worship because he's the greatest being in all of existence. And he is no less God if he doesn't receive our worship. He is not augmented, enhanced, or improved by our worship. But we are augmented. We are enhanced. We are improved by worshiping him. The Lord does not need our worship, but we need to worship him. It is our greatest need. You see, the Lord himself is the ultimate joy. He is the apex of all that is good and valuable. God himself is the consummate reward. The only perfectly and eternally soul-satisfying reality is God. He is the origin and apex of love, the source and zenith of all pleasure, the font and pinnacle of all delight. That is God. What then could God command that would show Him most loving? There's only one possible answer, isn't there? Love Him. Worship Him. Hold fast to Him. Give Him your undivided allegiance. In commanding us to love Him, He is directing us to the one and only, never-ending, all-satisfying beauty and greatness and wisdom and strength and love in the universe. John Piper says it this way, If God would give us that which is best and most satisfying, I need to do John Piper, If God would give us that which is best and most satisfying, that is, if He would love us perfectly, He must offer us no less than Himself for our contemplation and fellowship and joy. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures evermore. Anything less than the Lord as our eternal reward is lacking and destitute. Anything less than the Lord as our eternal reward is lacking and destitute. He is our great treasure. He is the pearl of great price. Our enjoying God, our praising and rejoicing in the Lord is our highest satisfaction. The Lord's exaltation is our soul's satisfaction. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. His exaltation leads to our satisfaction. The ultimate act of love to us is for God to captivate us with Himself. He therefore is jealous for our love, not only because He deserves it, because he alone is our ultimate and final good. The implications of this truth are staggering. 
staggering. This means that God's pursuit of his highest glory is his pursuit of our consummate good. What? Do you know why? Because God's highest glory and our consummate good are one and the same. What? 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 The more highly God is exalted, the more satisfied our souls become. The more undivided our allegiance is to Him, the more our souls are made whole. As Augustine said, Thou hast made us for Thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. Oh, nothing like a good Augustine quote, huh? Thou hast made us for Thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. We need to realize that God's command for Israel to worship Him and love Him is the most loving and gracious command that could ever be given. His call for undivided allegiance is the highest delight of their souls. The more they glorify Him, the more they will be glorified in Him. His jealousy is at one in the same moment for His highest glory and His people's highest good. And this, this is what the cross accomplished. Accomplished. There are a lot of things going on at Calvary. Two of those things were the vindication, the upholding, the maintaining, the preservation of God's glorious perfections. And secondly, was the restoration of sinful people to this glorious God. In that singular act, Jesus achieved what we could not. So that we can forever perpetually enjoy the infinitely holy and glorious perfections of the Lord God Almighty. That's what the cross did for you, folks. He achieved it so that we can come and rejoice and worship and love this great God. Hallelujah! What more should capture our singular devotion? What more should seize our hearts, lay hold of our fidelity, arrest our affections, secure our loyalties, than a God who loves you so much that He would die on a cross so that you could enjoy His infinite love and perfections forever? What more? should commandeer our undivided allegiance than that. And yet, and yet we, and yet Israel, are easily divided. So quickly distracted by the next shiny thing. Ooh, it's shiny. Oh. Fascinated by the unfamiliar, fickle, apathetic. Can't help 
but think of C.S. Lewis's quote here. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. I peter about in this world, living a divided life, my heart being taken in a hundred different directions, my devotion on life support, my allegiance to the mud pies that make me momentarily distracted and partially amused. My affections are divided because... Because of what? Because he hasn't met with my momentarily self-satisfying, self-worshipping demands of personal peace, health, and affluence? And yet, these desires are simply yearning for mud pies. I want to be pleased and feel content in my mud pies. I often barely think to and far less want to ask what David asked. Listen to David's prayer. It's profound. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord. Nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Hear that prayer? He asked the Lord to unite his heart. Make it one, one, undivided. Make my passions, my devotion, my allegiance and worship one. Give me a singular love that I would love you with everything in my life. In your magnificent, jealous love, awaken my heart to my apathy, to my stupidity, to my lack of desire for what is my consummate good, that I would love you with everything in my life, my wife, my kids, my friends, my co-workers, my brothers, my sisters, that my husbanding and parenting and pastoring and encouraging and working and praying and eating and relaxing be an exercise of my love to you, O Lord, my God, that there would be an outworking of my allegiance to you, O my God, that whether I eat or whether I drink or whatever I do, I do it all for the glory of God. Unite my heart to fear you, O God. To find my satisfaction not in the baubles of this world. To not cast my affections on mud pies. Give me an undivided heart, Lord. Give me undivided devotion. Give me undivided passion. Give me an undivided allegiance for you, 
O Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I want to pray David's psalm. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord. Nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are our God. So Lord, teach us your ways, that we may walk in your truth. We ask that you would unite our hearts Unite our hearts, God, to fear your name. To you be all glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.